I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. listeners, what you just heard was an excerpt from a rather old song written by Irving Berlin in 1914, entitled Stay Down Here Where You Belong, a song in which the devil tells his son not to go up above to earth where men are embroiled in war. Due to its anti-war and pro-pacifist sentiments, as well as the time period from which it came, I felt that opening the show with that song would be apropos, as we're going to be discussing war profiteering and the resistance to it in the United States circa World War I and its aftermath with returning guest Hunter Durensis, author of the recent article at The American Conservative entitled Merchants of Death, which explores in large part the Nye Committee investigation into war profiteering in the early part of the 20th century. With all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with, again, Hunter Durensis, author of the article Merchants of Death at the American Conservative. (laughs) 
Hey, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue the show, I've got a movie that I want to tell you about. Check out the film Tremel by Christopher Jason Bell, available on the Slam Dance YouTube channel. The film follows Dale as he lives a solitary life in a small town, his only outlet being conversations with the local pharmacist Muhammad. As time passes, Dale slowly begins to reveal more of his life and history to Muhammad. Laud it for its empathy, Tremel highlights the forgotten community member in a time when there is no community, and examines what happens when someone's only human connection is a service worker. You can watch over at slamdance.com slash watch slash Tremel, or at youtube.com slash slamdance. Check it out, folks. Welcome to Parallax Views, Hunter Derensis. Uh, how are you doing today? And what is new with you since we last talked? I think it's been maybe a year or two. So you've been doing a lot lately. Yes. Uh, happy to be back, JG. It's been, uh, I think, a little over two years since I was on. Uh, yeah, a couple things have changed. Uh, currently, I'm working as the uh, communications director for the Veterans Advocacy Organization, Bring Our Troops Home. I am the editor at the Libertarian Institute and a regular contributor at the American Conservative, among uh, several other places that I write for. So the reason I wanted to have you back on the show, you had a very interesting piece on the American Conservative called Merchants of Death. And it was interesting to me because I, I think people forget within our country's history, there has been a pretty strong resistance to war profiteering, U.S. war profiteering. And I was wondering, how did you get interested in that topic? And also, it's an interesting topic because I feel like historically, people of both the left and the right have basically tried to resist war profiteering. I agree. It's a very interesting topic. It's uh, the, the thesis actually came to me a couple years ago, so I've just sort of been developing it in the back of my head until uh, I finally sat down this year and actually wrote it. Um, what I really wanted to do with this piece was to not necessarily have a history of the military-industrial complex, but more like a history of the public perception of the military-industrial complex. How did we go from the interwar period after World War I, where there was broad public condemnation against war profiteering, when it was considered a very hot political issue, and when there was almost universal agreement among Americans that these large uh, corporations and large arms manufacturers shouldn't be making excess profits off the deaths of American service members, to today, when the term military-industrial complex is maybe colloquial at this point. It's, it's pretty commonly used to refer to uh, arms manufacturers, but there does not seem to be the same uh, condemnation, the same seriousness among the public, where if the military-industrial complex is used at all, it's really just used as an offhand expression to refer to corporations in the Pentagon sphere. It's be the same as saying, well, companies like uh, Walmart and Lockheed Martin, they're, they're treated as really the same when uh, a century ago they weren't. And I, I'm very interested in trying to reawaken the public conversation where we do take a closer eye on these companies and, in my opinion, start treating them like uh, we were about 80 to 100 years ago, which I think was the more proper response. In regards to where you start with the article, who are the war profiteers from the era that you're 
discussing, you sort of start with the progressive era. Yes, started with the progressive era because that was one of the, I, I could have started earlier, but I thought it was a good uh, starting point just because you have during that era, a uh, large public outrage and a large uh, public condemnation against uh, large businesses in general. And there wasn't a lot of discrimination in that case. So you have people being uh, criticized, uh, the American people criticizing uh, large businesses, whether that's uh, in, in, in the sphere of the economy, what they referred to as trusts, monopolists, et cetera. And they didn't hold back from businesses that would be making a profit during uh, armed conflict when the United States went to war. And that was, uh, in a large part, uh, J.P. Morgan, which was at the time uh, the largest investment bank in the world and who had its hands controlling in a large part of the economy. Could you talk a little bit more about the influence J.P. Morgan and also uh, DuPont had when it came to this war profiteering that was going on during World War One? Sure. So after uh, World War One begins in the summer of 1914, it is very clear where the House of Morgan, as they referred, uh, lies. Uh, the House of Morgan uh, was at this point run by J.P. Morgan Jr., son of its founder, who I believe died in 1912. Uh, they have very close connections to London bankers, very much in the ang- Anglophile sphere. And from the moment the war begins, the Morgans make it clear that they are on the side of the British government. Of course, World War I being primarily against uh, the Allies, Britain, France, Russia, versus Germany and Austria-Hungary, the central powers. Now, while Morgan at the beginning of the war might favor a British victory, uh, the U.S. government at the beginning says we are taking a neutral stance, that the affairs of Europe and how the borders of Europe are drawn are of no interest to the average American, and we don't really have a dog in this fight. And that was certainly the position taken by William Jennings Bryan, who was the Secretary of State at the time under Woodrow Wilson. And Bryan actually issues a decree saying that American banks and uh, American financiers will not be giving loans to either side, because that's what neutrality means. It means we're not getting involved, we have no favorites. Uh, we expect both sides to respect our rights as a neutral power. And in exchange, we're not going to allow ourselves to be entangled either way. Now, this ban gets removed in early 1915, doesn't even last a year. And that's primarily because of the lobbying efforts of J.P. Morgan, which, again, was the largest Wall Street investment firm in the world. So they had a lot of pull. And they had especially a lot of pull under Woodrow Wilson, who, president at the time, former governor of New Jersey, former president of Princeton University, had been in the Morgan ambit for several years, including serving on the board of an insurance company associated with the House of Morgan. And so William Jennings Bryan, seeing that the United States government under Woodrow Wilson doesn't plan to be truly neutral, actually resigns his post. It's the only time in American history where a secretary of state has resigned on principle. And uh, too too often not remembered these days, in my opinion. But uh, after the ban is lifted, uh, J.P. Morgan gets appointed by the British Crown as the uh, official go-between between the British government and then the French government and American financiers. It's now the House of Morgan uh, giving loans to the British government, the French government, 
Uh, and as those governments spend more on the war, now more of their debt is backed up by large American banks and American corporations. And uh, DuPont at the time, uh, of course, a chemical company, uh, had a big interest in seeing that the European powers would be using their products, such as gunpowder propellant. And uh, by the end of the war, uh, 1918, about 40% of the gunpowder used by the Allies came from DuPont. Uh, so they had a keen interest in making sure uh, that the war, that the powers involved in the war were using their products. And of course, come 1917, three years after the war started, JP Morgan has a keen interest in saying that the British and French must win this war because the they have to win this war to then repay back the loans that JP Morgan has given them. So it's uh, sort of a protection of their profits to see that the United States gets involved in this war. And I think uh, any fair historian would say that it was a contributing factor, certainly certainly not the only factor, but a key one uh, in saying that the, it, the financial powers uh, in this country uh, sought to involve our country in World War I to protect their own financial interests and their own profits. Now, you mentioned William Jennings Bryan. Are there any other figures that you think deserve special mention when it comes to questioning the war profiteers in this era? I think you also mentioned uh, George Norris, right? Yes. It's, it's one of the things I love about history is finding these uh, figures that are not talked about often in uh, modern American politics, but who were known and beloved at their time, because I think it's important for people, whether uh, left, right, libertarian, what have you, to say that ideas are important, ideas matter, it's why you and I do what we do, but it takes real flesh and blood men and women to put these ideas uh, into the public sphere, to put them in the public debate, and to put them into real policy. So I think it's very important for people to look at American history and find people who represent them and who did, you know, the thankless hero's work of getting it discussed. And that not only involves William Jennings Bryan, and uh, side note, I encourage anyone to look, anyone, any of your listeners to look into the 1900 presidential campaign where William Jennings Bryan swore that the, uh, the Constitution should follow the flag and we should not bring in all of these uh, imperialistic colonies after the Spanish-American War. But there are other figures like George Norris, uh, who you mentioned, who was a very progressive Republican from Nebraska, served in the Senate for many decades, uh, ended up supporting uh, Franklin, D Franklin Delano Roosevelt during the 1930s. Uh, when we went to war in 1917, George Norris said that we are putting the dollar sign upon the American flag, which caused a lot of outrage from uh, war hawks at the time. And there's also Robert La Follette, who said similar things and who voted against going to war uh, because he said it was for financial interests and not the service of the American people. Uh, people like William Borah and Hiram Johnson, uh, both Republicans, uh, both voted to go to war in 1917, but uh, quickly realized their mistake and, call, and uh, criticized its conduct and stayed very firmly in the uh, America first anti-imperialist tradition for the next two decades of their Senate careers. And of course, Gerald Nye, who I'm sure we'll talk about uh, throughout this conversation, who in uh, 1917 was not yet a politician. He was a newspaper editor in North Dakota and supported the war at the time. But like so many others, 
realized his mistake early on and uh, became very much a Robert LaFollette Republican in the sense that he was anti-corporate, anti-monopolist, anti-big business, but at the same time very pro-farmer, pro-nationalist, pro-America first, pro-neutrality, and uh, being very proud to represent uh, his community in North Dakota, which he saw being taken advantage of by East Coast financial interests. So I think it's so important to remember that while we might talk about ideas, it's just as important to find these figures who represent these ideas in the real world and honor their legacies. I like that line that you quote from Senator Karam Johnson about, you know, he votes for the war, but then says those who coin the blood of war and make swollen war profits uh, should pay the cost. And I want to get into that because I don't think that people think enough about the costs of war. So if we look at something like World War One, what was the cost of that war for the American people compared to the costs that would have been paid by a, a J.P. Morgan? Uh, the costs in World War One were tremendous. It was the most expensive war the United States had fought at that time. We're spending billions of dollars to send our troops overseas. We lose 117,000 doughboys, as the American troops were called at the time. And we don't really gain anything besides those excess deaths, uh, war debts, and the Spanish flu, which comes back to the United States. Uh, so I think it, it's part of the reason that you see such a condemnation of war profiteering and these large corporations during the interwar period, because the average American saw what war did to the country during World War I. And it was almost a universal sentiment among Americans to say, wow, the, we did not get into this war for the right reasons. I feel very manipulated having gone into this war, and this is something we should not do again. And I wish we were seeing something uh, similar today with uh, the global war on terror, where, of course, the Pentagon has spent over $14 trillion since 2001. Uh, over $6 trillion of that has been spent directly on our wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, etc. Uh, and I, I wish there was more public condemnation, though, of course, through uh, trick, through uh, financing and tricky uh, monetary policy and uh, debt, debt spending, the American people don't quite uh, as acutely feel the pain of that uh, unnecessary military spending as the American as their ancestors did a century ago with World War One. So before we get into where that title comes from, Merchants of Death, could you also talk a little bit about the efforts to essentially use taxation against the war profiteers? Certainly. It's, it's a question that I sort of open up the article with saying, is it morally right for these companies to earn these large profits off the involvement of their country in war? and the deaths of their sons and daughters in war. And I think it's it goes from a moral question to a policy question when you decide, well, no, they shouldn't be doing this, but then asking, well, what's the solution then? And there were various solutions presented in the uh, interwar period, uh, both during World War I, as, as you mentioned, Hiram Johnson proposing uh, excess uh, war taxes on these companies and people who were profiting during the war and things later proposed by Gerald Nye and the committee. And those, it sort of depends where you fall in the political spectrum, how you want to say whether these solutions are preferable, workable, or radical, uh, you know, to each his own. 
But uh, primarily, the Gerald Nye proposed that one uh, in this case, uh, when the Navy was more prominent in the U.S. military, that uh, shipbuilding shipbuilding yards, uh, instead of being privately owned and then the government buying those ships, they should simply be constructed at government-owned uh, shipbuilding yards, where the government is sort of building its own weapons. Uh, that was a solution. So essentially cut out private corporations and just have the government spending its own money to construct what it needs for its military without a profit margin. And simultaneously saying, if we are t- purchasing money from arms manufacturers, these private companies who produce weapons, then during wartime that they should be paying excess pr- uh, taxes on any excess profits. So anything that seems uh, extravagant to, you could say, the average voter or the average government official. Uh, and it was, uh, I, I found it quite charming uh, during the 1930s when Gerald Nye proposed that uh, if the country should go to war, that uh, taxes on incomes over $10,000, and uh, that was $10,000 in 1935. I'm not sure what that correlates to today. But taxes on people making over that amount should be raised to 98% during wartime as a sort of uh, uh, way to say that, you know, you should not be supporting this war because it's going to hurt you in the worst possible way in your pocketbook. Uh, you know, it's, it's the ultimate stick. And uh, Gerald Nye said, let's do this and we'll see how many, war, you know, war jingoists are left. And uh, the Nation magazine, uh, printing that is today, a very progressive outlet, uh, commented that if such a policy were, never, were ever enacted, that uh, big business would become our uh, biggest pacifists, which I find quite charming. The idea that uh, we could go to war today and you'd have uh, the head of major Wall Street banking and financial firms going to Congress and testifying, no, we, we can't go into Somalia. This is terrible. Like, and just seeing you know these men in pinstripe suits going and really... Uh, breaking the mold of what we would uh, probably expect them to be thinking when it comes to the American foreign policy. Uh, I believe in a lot of the people who talk about the military industrial complex today, public policy advocates, people who work on those issues, many of whom I interviewed for this piece, I don't believe they go nearly so far in uh, their solutions. I think they primarily focus on uh, being more, uh, having information more publicly available having things not so opaque and just sort of public awareness. Uh, I think there's a degree where maybe they would favor taxing, but probably most people involved in these issues would not favor uh, policies supported by Gerald Nye 80 years ago. And certainly that sort of a debate between where you fall in the issue or how far you want to go with it. I wanted to, since you mentioned the nation, uh, when we talk about the support for resisting war profiteering in the United States, it really was uh, a broad swath of people who uh, opposed war profiteering. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think most people that they hear, you know, if I use the term military industrial complex, for instance, people will be like, oh, you're, you're just one of those uh, hippie leftist guys. You know, I, I guess I am a leftist. I don't know if I'd call myself a hippie, but I think there was a time where people on the right and the left both really thought, you know, wars for empire are a bad thing. It's something I really appreciate about the interwar period when these ideas, which have been pushed by the mainstream to the edge of quote unquote respectable politics, uh, because, you know, there's, there, 
there's nothing more extreme than, uh, than opposing imperialism, I suppose. Uh, but during the interwar period, it was a very mainstream idea to say that the United States should not be going overseas in these wars, that we should keep to ourselves, and that when we did go to war, these corporations, which have an incentive to us going to war, should not be making these extreme profits off the sacrifices of the American people. That was a view shared by Republicans, Democrats, major unions, uh, teachers unions, farmers, as you said, the nation, uh, major newspapers under the Hearst chain, uh, veterans of foreign wars. Uh, these very mainstream organizations, and I have a short list of them in the article, uh, who's really uh, accepted and advocated the narrative that we had gone into World War I for the personal benefit of major companies and elites, and that we should not do it again. It was a very mainstream opinion. And by the late 1930s, when we finally start to have uh, public polling, uh, which really didn't exist in the 19-teens or when we went into World War I. But by the late 1930s, we're seeing public opinion polls where huge majorities of Americans, uh, over 60%, are saying that, one, the, these companies should not be making uh, huge profits or private gains off public sacrifices, and two, that we should not have gone into World War I. It was a mistake and that we feel duped having done it and shouldn't do it again. And well, I think you don't... it's important. I, I was just going to say, I think it's important yeah, too. Cool. I mean, it's it really is. I mean, J.P. Morgan isn't paying any of the costs for this war. You know, it's, it's ultimately the American people and the sacrifice they're making to fight it. Mm -hmm. And it was said uh, at the time, just after World War I, that J.P. Morgan Jr. made more money in that two-year period, 1917 and 1918, when the U.S. finally entered the war, then his father had made his entire life, decades in American financing in the 19th century. Uh, these people were enriching, the, personally enriching themselves, and their incentives were clear that they wanted America to go to war, and they certainly profited off it when it happened. And I I certainly agree, as I mentioned earlier, this was not the only reason the United States went to war in World War I. Uh, there are certainly various factors, as there are to any war, but it's something that really can't be ignored. It cannot be ignored that the incentives of our elite class are so much in one direction, and the interests of the average person are so much in the other direction. I think that leads to very disastrous policies and a very corrupted politics. And I think it's a factor that we can't be forgetful of, both uh, then in World War I and today. Just to give an idea for uh, my listeners of how I, I really think there was a hard pacifist movement in this country. I don't know if you've ever heard of this song, I Didn't Raise My Boy to Be a Soldier. It's from, uh, I believe... Oh, I can't I don't sing know. it for you, but I have heard of it. Oh, you do know of it. Okay. I, I it's from 1915, but... It, it's uh for my listeners, it's pacifist song. And, uh, you know, Theodore Roosevelt flipped out about it. He said, foolish people who applaud a song entitled I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier are just the people who would also in their hearts applaud a song entitled I didn't raise my girl to be a mother. So people like Roosevelt and uh, also Truman were criticizing this song and they were getting very angry about the anti-war sentiments and pacifist sentiments in this country. It was no joke to uh, the elites in our society. 
Absolutely. And I encourage uh, any of your listeners who are interested to really deep dive research on uh, Theodore Roosevelt and what he said during World War One. Uh, I've said this. Uh, I, I know the last time uh, I was on the program, we discussed uh, my article on the National Conservatism Conference some years back. And I recall I got a, quite a fight during uh, lunch at that conference when I offhandedly mentioned that Theodore Roosevelt loved war as much as any fascist. And that got people very angry because these national conservatives want to view themselves in the legacy of Roosevelt. But the fact is, Theodore Roosevelt did love war for war. He thought it was when uh, mankind as a species really came into its own. He always dreamed of a soldier's death, and he thought that it was uh, almost a cleansing process, that war was good just as it is because it allowed the masculine and the heroics to come forward. And you, I mean, Theodore Roosevelt was a, a perfect imperialist down to the letter. And while you have other progressives, such as Senator Robert La Follette, saying that we're fighting uh, World War I for financial interests and that it's these large trusts who are profiting off our entry into the European conflict, you have Theodore Roosevelt calling La Follette the biggest threat to democracy in the United States. Uh, so I, th I think there's a huge difference uh, when you sort of discuss historical progressives in, in where do they fall, either, you know, with Theodore, uh, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson or with William Jennings Bryan and Robert La Follette. I think there's a big difference there. Uh, and yeah, this, these, any sort of criticism against the war movement or believing that the German Hun is not some sort of subspecies that we are destined to go and fight and uh, the war to end all wars and spread democracy, any kind of shift from that rhetoric during World War I got you complete condemnation, as you just described. Just like uh, saying that we shouldn't be nation-building in Iraq or Afghanistan, or why are we toppling these secular dictators for the benefit of uh, Islamic jihadists today will get you terrible criticism from the mainstream, because you're attacking the heart of the system, which is the warfare state. So we have to cover this. Uh, the title is Merchants of Death. But you get that from uh, what was once a very popular book, a bestseller. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that book, Merchants of Death? Certainly. Merchants of Death was a 1934 book, uh, as you said, a bestseller. Uh, it was typically included in Book of the Month clubs. It was written by a professor at the Chicago, at Chicago, uh, University of Chicago, excuse me, and a conservative journalist, actually one of the later founders of the conservative weekly Human Events. And despite its very provocative title, it's actually a very scholarly study going through and giving a biographical history of about a half a dozen American and European arms companies. Uh, DuPont has a chapter, for instance, and then uh, describing uh, their methods and means of making these profits what profits were during World War One, including a lot of numbers, statistics. And it's in a lot of my reading of the secondary sources, I was very surprised by how many historians uh, discount this book as just uh, you know using faulty math or being uh, too out there or too fiery or really not making its case. When I think that comes too much from just seeing the title, seeing how provocative it is. Uh, and just interpreting that as, oh, the whole book must just be hyperbole. 
No, I would encourage your listeners, you can actually go, just Google Merchants of Death 1934. You can find PDFs free to read online. I would encourage them to just scan through it, look, and I think you'll find that it's actually a very clear academic language that's just under a very headline-grabbing title. And I think uh, that's part of the reason it was so popular, because it did such a good job of really taking a feeling which we already described that was very felt broadly among the American people that World War I was a mistake and sort of uh, putting more language to it and helping form the narrative that these uh, arms manufacturers uh, had profited off the war and that we should be skeptical over their influence in public life and considering what they do, how they make their money and how they influence our politics we should not be afraid to condemn them as merchants of death, and we shouldn't back away from that sort of language. Uh, and that became a very popular narrative throughout the 1930s and, of course, helped influence uh, the Nye Committee from 1934 to 1936 and played its part in shaping public perception, not only of World War I, but of the entire war profiteering system in general. I want to get to the Nye Committee, but I wanted to comment on that with uh, Merchants of Death. It sort of reminds me of uh, the situation with a historian that I like who's sort of fallen out of favor, um, Charles Austin Beard, who I'm mm-hmm. sure you're also familiar with. And I, I find a lot of Beard's work very, very compelling. But it seems like after, I don't know, uh, you know, the, the 1960s and particularly after the, I guess, the post-World War II era, ultimately, you know, people have just sort of dismissed him. But I think there's a lot of these authors and books like Merchants of Death, like the works of Charles Austin Beard, that really haven't been reckoned with enough. I agree. And actually, uh, my original draft of the article did include a reference to Char- uh, Charles Beard, uh, who was uh, supportive of the Merchants of Death narrative during the interwar period, although unfortunately that uh, got cut out of the final draft. But I, I think that, Well, that's interesting, right. too, because I think he supported World War I initially. Like many of the people we're discussing who were initially... Uh, deluded into believing Woodrow Wilson's promises, and it was only after war was declared that they really saw the reality of the situation. Uh, I'm actually quite surprised by how many people uh, like Gerald Nye, William Bora, Hiram Johnson, uh, most of these people who are big critics during the interwar period of this system initially supported World War I, uh, which I, I just find quite interesting to see that even people we support or people who we can appreciate, you know, could still make mistakes, correct themselves, and they didn't just start out being totally right about everything. It was they they grew as people, uh, and I totally agree that it's we. I think people take it too much that reading history books written in the last say ten years, well, they're written more recently, so surely they must have more resources, or they must be the most comprehensive books written on certain subjects. I think people should be much more willing to go and read books from. Uh, either, you know, uh, the 60s from the Wisconsin School, which I'm sure you're uh, familiar with as a sort of a successor to Beard, uh, or even during the interwar period, writing about uh, these topics on American history, because there are schools of historiography which get slouch, slouched off today as, you know, uh, no longer relevant. But history is not just a process of just going forward. I think it's very easy for people to forget that we can lose ideas, we can lose history, we can lose facts, and that sometimes going back and reading the past as it was written in the past is more helpful than reading modern historians in the present who hold uh, very different uh, 
first principles and very different perceptions of those times uh, than was just a few decades ago. And it's 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 easy for to forget those different schools of historiography, like Charles Beard and the materialists. Was there anything in Merchants of Death that stood out to you the most, or you know, r- really hit you, and you're like, "Wow, that that's an incredible insight." Not particularly. Um, I just have to say that I was very impressed by the amount of research that it went into it. Like I said, half the book is really just biographical, uh, taking the you know, these example companies and going back and looking at those histories. DuPont was founded originally in 1802, and you have you can see the entire progression of the company from starting out uh, by, I believe, French immigrants and then becoming the uh, energy power that it was at the turn of the 20th century and sort of uh, just including that information. I, I found it to be a very well-researched, uh, basically academic book that just gets uh, ignored or written off just because it has an inflammatory title. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. Before we continue our conversation on this edition of Parallax Views, I want to notify California listeners of the program about one of our sponsors, the Therapy Practice of Alexander Yu. Yu is an experienced teletherapist since 2008, and he goes by the motto, Flow, Adapt, Change, as Lao Tzu would say, and he wants to accompany you on your journey of self-improvement. Now again, this applies to California listeners of the program. Alexander is a licensed psychotherapist and teletherapist, and if you'd like his services, then please contact him at Alexander U. That's Alexander U Y O O dot com and he can be reached by email at therapy at alexanderu.com or by phone at 323-834-9828. That's 323-834-9828. This is only available once again to my California listeners, but if you need anything related to therapy needs, please be sure to contact our sponsor, Alexander Yu. So now I want to get into what was the Nye Committee? I, I, I feel like we've been building up to it uh, this whole time, but uh, I, I thought we would get to it later in the show. Uh, just because I think it's a really interesting and uh, overlooked piece of history. So the Nye Committee was the investigation, excuse me, the inve- the congressional investigation into the munitions industry during the 1930s. Uh, it was started uh, about the same time that Merchants of Death actually became a best-selling book in 1934. So these sort of simultaneous events uh, that spring. And uh, as we were discussing, you have a buildup during the interwar period of uh, the peace movement, the pacifist movement, uh, more of a sort of a America first nationalist movement, which not necessarily pacifistic, but believing that the United States should not be involved in unnecessary wars. And as this broad public sentiment grows, 
You have a small group of activists, ideologues, people interested in these issues who want to take advantage of uh, public sentiment and uh, use it to further the cause. Uh, there is even support, not not to interrupt you, but the, I think there is even support from like the, the feminists or the, the women's movement and suffragists. Exactly. There's a huge uh, cross-section and overlap between uh, the early feminists, uh, suffragettes, uh, supporters of women's rights, and the pacifist movement. And that's well represented by uh, Dorothy Detzer, who was an activist during the interwar period, uh, succeeded, uh, I apologize, I don't remember the name of the organization off the top of my head, but a women's rights organization uh, that was uh, originally founded by uh, Jane Addams, which she comes into control of in 1925. And she uses her position to advocate uh, against uh, militarism, et cetera. Uh, Detzer was uh, a principled pacifist uh, in that sense. And in 1934, she has a meeting with Senator George Norris of Nebraska, Republican, progressive Republican, who we discussed earlier. And they sit down and they decide that it would be best to have a congressional investigatory committee looking into these accusations of war profiteering and looking into these companies, opening up their books and seeing what was really happening uh, just 20 years ago during the First World War. Now, Norris declines to chair it. Uh, he's old at this point. He doesn't think he really has it in him, even though he's supportive. And so what Detzer and Norris do is they sit down and they go through a complete list of, at the time, all 96 U.S. senators and decide who is best to chair this committee. And at the end, there's only one name left, and that is Senator Gerald Nye of North Dakota, who, uh, again, progressive, uh, Robert La Follette Republican, very representative of agricultural and farmers' interests, uh, odd haircut, if anyone wants to look up a picture, uh, who was uh, appointed to the Senate in 1925, reelected in 19, elected to a full term in 1926, just reelected in 1932, just prior to the committee being uh, founded. And they decide that he is the best man to lead the way uh, because he and they ask him at first. He says, no, it takes debts or asking a few times for Nye to agree. But once he does agree to, chip, to get involved in this issue, he does it with uh, relish and gets uh, very involved. Uh, Nye was admittedly uh, he was a hothead. I think that's fair to say he was a very inflammatory speaker. He was not afraid of using uh, very strong language. Uh, very headline-grabbing language, uh, and that that was uh, known at the time. Uh, and I include a quote from Norris uh, describing that, but so de deciding that he is still the best man for the job because he he has that passion about the issue and about getting to the bottom of things. Uh, and the committee is founded through some uh, parliamentary procedural work that I describe in the article. Uh, it's uh, some Republicans are appointed, some Democrats, but it's a majority Democratic committee at the time. This is the era of FDR and the New Deal. The Senate is over two-thirds Democratic, but they still uh, decide to elect this uh, Republican from North Dakota as the chairman, which I think uh, goes to show how remarkable Nye was that he was even able to get this position. And over the course of two years, from the spring of 1934 to late winter 1936, the committee holds 93 hearings, calls over 200 witnesses, and is able to really uh, open up the books of these major companies searching for skullduggery. 
And they find that. That includes uh, bribing of political officials, primarily in South America. That includes funding both sides of conflicts. Uh, that includes um, uh, under, underhanded dealings and trying to discourage uh, peace and disarmament conferences, which were very popular during the interwar period. And they are able to call in these uh, witnesses, including J.P. Morgan Jr. himself, the DuPont brothers, Eli Watson, senator, former senator from Indiana and the former Senate, major, Senate majority leader. They're, they're calling in these big people to come and be questioned by the Senate committee and have to answer for themselves about the actions of their companies and the profits they made and what they did to influence the situation. And I think it I was, think what, 93 hearings and over 200 witnesses? Correct. And it, it's a remarkable thing. because I don't think we could even imagine today the head of uh, Raytheon or the head of Lockheed Martin or Northrop Grumman being called to testify before a public uh, before a Senate committee today and being made to answer difficult, even accusatory questions. It's, it's something that it's hard for people like you and me to even wrap our minds around that this could happen in our current political moment. But this did happen. They did accomplish this. And they went and they found things and made them public. And there was public outrage about this. The Gerald Nye and the Nye Committee were making headlines every week. Nye was giving major radio addresses. And it's part of the reason that the committee was eventually shut down in early 1936, uh, partially because Theodore Roosevelt saw Nye's popularity as a possible threat uh, to his uh, presidential ambitions for re-election in 1936. And there is debate among historians over whether what FDR really thought about the committee. Uh, there are some who contend that Roosevelt uh, never supported the committee and that he merely gave his uh, permission for it to go forward based on popular public opinion and to try to curry favor with uh, Midwest politicians and voters uh, when he was still focused on passing the New Deal. There are others who say that he was fully supportive of the committee and only got sick of it when it, he believed it went to excess. Uh, there's other people who say he believed it, but later came to regret it. Uh, so, you know, only FDR will really know what he thought about the committee, but there are differing interpretations on whether you want to believe FDR was being ideological or cynical about it. But in a... In I just wanted to add real quick, um, if I could, uh, and Nye was being attacked too, I think, uh, by... You know, people like Senator Tom Conley, uh, you mentioned that he called him a ghoul that was uh, uh, mm -hmm. desecrating the soldiers and whatnot. It's, it's very bizarre stuff. Exactly. And that really comes to, to the forefront in uh, 1936 when uh, Nye goes a step too far to the politics of the era. Uh, Nye says that Woodrow Wilson, uh, at that point dead over 12 years, uh, and Secretary of State Robert Lansing, uh, at that point dead, also several years, had uh, purposely lied to Congress about uh, diplomacy during the First World War, the secret treaties, when it was revealed that prior to American entry into World War I, the British and French governments, uh, also uh, the Italian government, had already among themselves sort of divvied up uh, the treasures that they would get at the end of the war, uh, borders, people, money, uh, sort of already came to those agreements before those themselves. And this, these secret treaties, were a big contradiction to Woodrow Wilson's 13 points, where he called for, after American entry, 
uh, peace without victory, that the United States would not, this would not be a punitive peace imposed on Germany. Uh, of course, contradicted by what Versailles became and the secret treaties that were already formed among the Allies. And Nye contended that Wilson, when he came to Congress in April 1917 and asked for a declaration of war, was already aware of these treaties. And then when he called for this uh, very just peace, he knew he was lying. And this caused enormous outrage over, uh, I love this, what the New York Times called the lovers of Woodrow Wilson uh, in the U.S. Senate, uh, which again was over two-thirds Democratic. So you have Democrats coming in and saying that Nye is spitting on the graves of Wilson, that he's uh, shaming the dead. This is outrageous. Uh, you have uh, Senator, I cannot recall his first name, Senator Glass of Virginia, one of the uh, chairs of the financial committee during a lot of his tenure, one of the architects of the Federal Reserve System. Uh, he goes and he practically calls Nye a coward on the Senate floor, the 78-year-old man beating his fist against his desk until his knuckles bleed. Uh, it's It was uh, quite a remarkable thing. And, uh, and Glass, Glass is the one who was the, I guess he was the chair of the Appropriations Committee, and he said, oh, Nye hadn't uncovered a revelation worth uh, $125,000, $100,000, or even 25 cents, right? Yes, uh, it was. He was in charge of the Appropriations Committee, which made it a for sure thing that when the Nye Committee ran out of money, it would not be getting any more. Uh, and it, they were originally appropriated $125,000 to work with. Uh, that's what class was referencing. And uh, so basically the Nye Committee ended because uh, the Democrats were too defensive over Woodrow Wilson and were unwilling to give even a penny more to continue investigating the arms manufacturers. So why did the Nye Committee, as you put it, fall short of its ultimate goal? Because I don't think either of us would say, oh, well, uh, Senator Glass was completely right. You know, there, there was no issue with war profiteering. But why did the Nye Committee fall short ultimately? I think this is really the crux of my article and the thing that I really try to hit home during the middle of the piece and which connects uh, the historical part, which is the first half, and the modern day part, which is the second half. And that the merchants of death narrative falls short factually because it presupposes too much power and influence on arms manufacturers during that era. Uh, the fact is that during the 1930s, uh, the DuPont company, the money they were making off of uh, military contracts was less than 1% of their business. And that at the time, uh, during World War I, while the DuPont company and other arms manufacturers are influential, so to speak, they really don't hold any special influence or any undue influence more than any other lobbying group that you see in any uh, sphere of politics. And that there, as I've tried to emphasize during this interview, there were multiple reasons the United States entered World War I. It was not a singular thing to do with any one company or just a profit motive or anything like that. And the thing that I find so interesting is that the idea that the arms manufacturers hold this lock grip over American politics, during the 1930s, it's not true considering the size of them and the actual influence they hold on politics, but it is invariably true during the post-war era after World War II 
when we see uh, the combining of the departments into the Department of Defense, the creation of the permanent national security state, and the creation of a permanent war economy where there is a perpetual war budget that does not go down, that companies can now exist after World War II existing or feeding purely on Pentagon chum, getting their money only from government contracts to make these weapons of war, uh, something that did not exist prior to World War II and the era that Nye was investigating. So I think they did find uh, many uh, inappropriate things being done by the munitions committee, uh, things that it's good that were made public and that they brought public attention to. But at the end of the day, I don't think that the narrative of what we would today term the military industrial complex existed at that time, but only came to exist after World War II. And that's the thing that I really tried, really wanted to bring to light when it came to the public perception of all this. Why is it when the arms manufacturers in this country were a very small set during, the inter, during World War I and the interwar period, you have all of this public interest and condemnation, but after World War II, when you have the creation of a full-time military-industrial complex, uh, these corporations you know, holding tight to the Potomac to make their profits and sell these weapons to the Pentagon, why is there no longer that public outrage, even though the problem is gargantuan and so many times bigger than it originally was, which I think is a uh, it, it's a narrative that needs more examination than I was even able to get it with give it with just this one article. Just uh, a few more things before we wrap up, if you have the time. I wanted to ask you about uh, this figure that comes up very briefly in the article, uh, Eugene G. Grace, who was president of both Bethlehem Steel Corporation and uh, its subsidiary, the Bethlehem Shipbuilding Corporation. Uh, that anecdote about him was very interesting because he was uh, – not thrilled with the Nye Committee. No, like uh, other uh, heads of bit, heads of big business at the time and people involved in uh, the, uh, the arms industry, they were not happy with the Nye Committee. They felt they were getting a bad rap because essentially Grace comes to the committee and says, hey, all I did was sell weapons to my government who was asking for them. Sure, I made some money, but I did the patriotic thing, and I did my duty to the government. And he's giving these answers. Uh, uh, he was smiling the whole time, very gracious uh, guest, you could say, before the committee, while he's being given very difficult questions by uh, Senator Homer T. Bone of Washington. Great name. Uh, and yeah, he was uh, very representative of these companies who are coming forth and just sort of pleading innocence to everything. Sure, we made some money. Who didn't? It's just the facts of life. Well, but I, I, I love how wrong. you're saying made some money because I think you, in exactly. the article you write that he pocketed over like what two million uh, dollars or something. Yes, this is a man who had, I believe, uh, just over I want to say twelve thousand dollars salary as CEO. Yes. but during the war, made millions in bonuses just for himself. So again, this is. Stratos stratospheric profits uh, to just the CEO of this company, not even the board of the directors or other investors. Uh, I believe it was DuPont uh, at the beginning of the war. Uh, the average cost of the share was about $20, and by the end of the war, is $1,000. It's, it's not just, say, going a few extra dollars, as much as I might joke about it. It is. These people are making 
enormous profits doing something that I think if questioned, the average American would say is immoral. You know, it's interesting, too, because we're talking about all of this. And of course, we talked about how you um, work for the Libertarian Institute. And I I find it interesting. uh, A lot of people I know will say, well, why would libertarians be against, uh, you know, private industry uh, and its involvement in wars? And I've always found that very confusing because I I think to myself, uh, you know, these private industries, uh, the arms manufacturers particularly, are now basically in bed with the government. So why would libertarians um, like them? You know, I, I think they would oppose that. That's well said. And I think uh, every uh, libertarian worth his druthers will recognize that there are two ways to get money in this world. There are the economic means and there are p- the political means. We recognize that the state as a monopoly on force and violence gets its profits through the violence that is taxation and other things. And that we recognize that companies that are ostensibly private, but who exist only as arms of the state, who get their money only through fulfilling state services, and who are existing just on these contracts taken from taxation, selling weapons to the state to engage in these wars, which uh, we oppose as state creations and unnecessary, that they're recognized as not simply private individuals or private companies, and that their profits are not just. It's this thing I said at the beginning of this interview. I think a libertarian, a good libertarian, must have a very thorough distinction between Walmart, a private company that exists to provide goods and services to people for a voluntary exchange, and something like Lockheed Martin, which gets over 90% of its money from weapons contracts from the U.S. government, to sell the government shoddy weapons that barely work at overpriced uh, margins, uh, which are then used to get help drive us into these wars of choice. And that when the more wars we engage in and the more U.S. soldiers that die, Lockheed Martin is able to profit even more. I think any libertarian worthy of the name should be able to recognize that this is an unjust system and have the distinction that these uh, weapons contractors are not private industry as we would refer to them, that they are arms of the state and must be opposed as thoroughly, maybe more so than the state apparatus. Now, at, at the beginning of the conversation, or earlier in it at least, um, we talked about how uh, there were sort of the um, American patriots, nationalists, American uh, America first uh, types that were very against war profiteering. But I, I mean, for me, I'm not, I, I wouldn't consider myself um, much of an, a, a nationalist. But t- to me, when I look at something like, well, what we talked about with what the Nye Committee looked into, uh, you know, war profiteers funding both sides, uh, to me, a lot of these issues aren't necessarily inherently uh, simply you're left if you believe this, you're right if you believe this. Uh, I, I think people can actually come together on this issue. I, I totally agree. And I think it's, uh, I, I would describe myself personally as a nationalist. I, I do feel uh, it, it's one of the reasons I uh, am so against our wars of choice in the Middle East and against American intervention overseas that it's not, I, only, I not only as a libertarian recognize it as an evil aggression by the state, but 
I am outraged as an American that a government is committing these crimes in my name. And that does create a very personal outrage with myself. And I, I think that's a sentiment that was shared by America First nationalists at the time, such as William Bora, Gerald Nye, who viewed themselves as Americans and who viewed these uh, arms manufacturers as having no loyalty to the American people and who put their profits uh, over people. I, uh, in my original draft, I had an excellent quote by uh, Charles Lindbergh Sr., uh, not the aviator, but his father, who was a Republican congressman from Minnesota and who was uh, very much against uh, international, uh, large international banking and against American intervention in World War I. Uh, the New York Times actually referred to him as the gopher Bolshevist. Uh, so was he against uh, international finance. But he said that there are interests in this country who are putting their personal profits over American soldiers. And I think that's an accurate description. And I, as an American, I, I feel a genuine anger at that, uh, that really you know stirs something in my heart to say, this is not right, not just out of a principle, but as an American, this is not right to me that this is happening in a country that I love. Yeah, I was just going to add to that. I mean, uh, you know, for people that are patriotic or, you know, I, I think there's different types of nationalism. You know, I, I think uh, I think a lot of people would say nationalism means to them like uh, you know, kooky white supremacist types. And I, I think there's also the, you know, civic nationalists. I, you know, I was um, discussing this with Anatole Levin at the uh, Quincy Institute, how, you know, some of the things that Biden or Hillary have tried to say tries to sort of tap into civic nationalist sentiments. And when it comes to this conversation that we're having right now, I mean, war profiteers, uh, arguably, it's one of the most unpatriotic things uh, someone can be involved in because you're basically saying, I don't care about civic duty and and helping, uh, you know, uh, the country. I just want to make my profits. You're robbing uh, it, it's the It's complete American lack of civic duty. Completely agree. So closing out here, what was the sort of fallout from uh, the Nye Committee and all this history we've been talking about? Because I think, you know, ultimately, and maybe this is the glimmer of hope at the end here, uh, it did have an impact. I mean, uh, a lot of companies were afraid uh, you know, General Motors, I think you mentioned, uh, they were worried about getting post-war blowback after World War II. Oh, we, we can't be uh, profiteering too much here. And uh, I think you also mentioned uh, a lot of um, a lot of uh, private individuals were like, oh, I don't think I want to go into the defense uh, industry. Um, and that was covered, I think, in Fortune, as you write in the article. Yes, uh, I think that's a good summary that uh that even after it, uh, the committee ended in 1936, even going uh, throughout the uh, during the war, World War II, you do have a lot of reticence of companies saying, well, I don't really know if I want to get into military contracting because that can have a lot of blowback. Uh, what if after the war, people come after me, they attack me, my reputation is ruined because the public was so uniformly in agreement with the Nye Committee and its conclusions that I think it did have a very positive effect where companies said like, oh, you know, I know we can make this much money, but maybe we better hit the brakes here because in a couple of years, look, I mean, look what happened to the guys after World War I. They, they could come after us. I don't want that on my back. So I, th I think it did a great job of creating that disincentive against war profiteering during the next World War. 
And of course, during World War II, we have the renegotiation process where the government uh, agrees to a contract with a private company for a weapon system or what have you. And it can then renegotiate things after the fact based on, well, did the contract go over budget? Was it late? Uh, did you say you were going to make only 7% profit, but in actuality, it looks like you're making over 30%. So let's reconfigure the numbers here. Uh, and, and that process went away during the 1970s. But I, I think the my committee did have a lot of positive effects uh, during World War II in trying to stem at least the most outrageous parts of war profiteering that occurred during World War I. And unfortunately, Gerald Nye uh, lost re-election in 1944, and he retired from public politics after that. But I, I think it's important to remember not just his actions, but his legacy, which I think is so important to try to rekindle uh, even today. And there, of course, as you sort of know, there's others that followed in his footsteps afterward. I think you mentioned um, Senator William Proxmire uh, during the Vietnam War. So it's not like uh, this didn't have ripples going forward. And I, I mean, of course, I, we always will have that speech by Eisenhower about the military industrial complex. So I, I guess the fight goes on a lot of ways. Yes, it does. And as we fight, I just hope we remember that we're standing on the shoulders of giants like Gerald Nye and like William Proxmire, like William Bora, like Hiram Johnson, like Robert LaFollette, these great men of a previous age who did so much to make the path for people like you and me to continue the fight against the warfare state, against war profiteering, and against these endless, unnecessary wars that we're still fighting today. I ought to get your opinion on one last thing. Are you a fan mm -hmm. of uh, General Smedley Butler? And what, what are your thoughts on what he contributed um, to sort of pacifist and anti-war thought with regards to war as a racket? I am a big fan of Smedley Butler. I would encourage your listeners to look up uh, my name and Smedley Butler. I wrote what I thought was a pretty good article on him over the summer uh, during his birthday in August. Uh, that's part more biographical than I think a lot of articles uh, going into him look at. But no, I, I think it was gr a great thing for someone with his record to come forward and say what was what. To say that I, when I was in the U.S. Marine Corps, I was working on the behest of these large corporations who had financial interests and that that was one of the primary reasons for U.S. interventions in Central America and really bringing it forward. And he used a lot of the same numbers in his book, Wars Racket, published in 1935, that were referenced in Merchants of Death the previous year. It was covering, uh, you know, really a lot of the same territory. And yeah, I think an excellent heroic figure that should inspire not just every American, but every soldier and every veteran as well. And I also, I told you we'd talk about it, but I guess we don't have that much time now. Uh, but you, you've also written recently about how uh, these nation-building wars uh, are apparently breeding distrust in institutions when it comes to uh, voters in places like where I'm at right now, Pennsylvania. Oh, where in Pennsylvania are you from? I'm uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, the still city. Oh, I'm originally from Altoona. Oh, awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but fantastic. I, I was wondering if you could just briefly tell my listeners mm -hmm. about that issue. Uh, so uh, during my introduction, I mentioned that I'm the communications director for Bring Our Troops Home, which is a veterans organization. 
Uh, I am not a veteran, but I'm the only person in the organization who is not a veteran. So I'm, I'm just the civilian helper. But uh, I think working with veterans, it really becomes clear. And I think people who do have a lot of conversations or know a lot of people who have served, it becomes clear that veterans and active duty soldiers, more than most people, see the problems of our current system, see the errors of the warfare state, and see the problems of policies like nation building. When the Pentagon messes up, or when we have a failure of a general or our supposed military leaders, maybe the public notices, but for the most part, they've already forgotten. Certainly the corporate press is going to continue to praise people like David Petraeus and other people that they put up on these pedestals. But the average soldier, the people who go overseas, who are in the muck, who see these failed policies, who witness it, who maybe lose a friend or lose a leg to these uh, to these terrible practices, are very aware of what the warfare state is and what it's doing to this country. And I think that's why when public polling for years now, a majority of Republicans support bringing our troops home from these endless wars. A majority of Democrats support bringing our troops home from these endless wars, both majorities. Veterans, people who have served, super majorities, consistently, year after year, over 65%, two-thirds of people who have served in the United States military say we need to bring our troops home from Afghanistan, which we did earlier this year, from Iraq, from Syria. These are the people who have witnessed the problems of our foreign policy, who know more than anyone the costs of our foreign policy, and they're the ones who think that we need to end this attempt by the United States government to rule and dictate to the rest of the world how it lives, and that we need to return to an America, uh, a policy that, in my turn of phrase, would put America first and start looking after our own people instead of these nation-building missions. So that's what I really wanted to convey in that article, that when we have the disaster that was the war in Afghanistan, which resulted in uh, with the collapse of the Afghan government, which was, of course, inevitable because it was simply a prop up by our government, that when we saw that and that soldiers really saw that, that they saw, oh, I went overseas, I served to do this, for this to happen, what were the sacrifices I made? What were my friend's sacrifices who died? What did they really give to this? And I think that creates an enormous disillusionment for soldiers who see the errors of these institutions, which I think is seen at large by the American people, that we're in an era, a political era, a cultural era, where people do no, no longer trust the institutions that are governing us, whether that's the government, whether that's large companies, whether that's the media, whether that's Hollywood, and now the last uh, you know, uh, idol, the military, where people, especially soldiers, are seeing the error, errors of our political elite and are saying, there's a problem here, we need to do something about it. And, I, and that's what I wanted to convey in that piece, that soldiers, even more than the average person, see what's going on and want to do something about it. And that's why I'm so happy and proud to work for an organization that cares about veterans and cares about uh, active duty soldiers and not creating more veterans through these wars of choice that benefit political elites and financial elites, but just cost the American people and, of course, people overseas far too much in blood and treasure.
And it, it's always interested me just in closing with with veterans. I think people have this image that, and it, it's I think bolstered by popular media at times, and and some of the stuff around figures like Chris Kyle, where soldiers are presented to us as like these guys who are like, yeah, gung ho, let's go to war. When really, you know, the, the vets I've talked to that have actually experienced war, not uh, you know, people pushing pencils or anything like that. You know, I often get reactions like, you know, I didn't know why I was shooting at them and why they were shooting at me. And it's it's really psychologically uh, impacting on people. And there's, you know, it, it's just such a tragedy that we don't listen to these vets that see the they see the problems with the warfare state. Absolutely. And I and there certainly are veterans and soldiers who do hold that uh, gung-ho attitude. Uh, forgive me, I, I'm blanking on the name. Who, who's the con- Republican congressman from Texas with the eye patch? Oh, uh, Crenshaw. But I mean, yeah, Stan Crenshaw. But you're you're, you're right that they that, that those do exist. But there are so many troops that are just level-headed people that are actually exactly, yeah. and that's the point I wanted to make. Just because Dan Crenshaw, of course, is a veteran, did serve, lost an eye in the war, but he can favor the continuous occupation of Afghanistan. Openly said we should never leave. Continues to favor American intervention overseas. And while he is a veteran, and of course, you know, uh, not to take anything away from his service, but the fact is, it's not talked about by the media or people who present these things that Dan Crenshaw represents a minority of veterans. No, in no way does Dan Crenshaw represent the average veteran's view of our foreign policy, but yet he's brought forth as a veteran to speak on behalf of the community, when the fact is two-thirds of people who served alongside him think he's dead wrong about wanting to stay in these wars. But that doesn't get talked about. It's the same thing where so, uh, Tom Cotton, same thing, uh, served in, I believe, Iraq and Afghanistan, if I'm remembering that correctly, a senator from Arkansas, one of the biggest hawks in all the U.S. Congress, did serve, genuine veteran, but his views do not align whatsoever with the supermajority of people who have served in the veteran community. But that's not what is presented to the American people by our media and by others. So many people in Congress, the few who have served, which is far few and far between, are not representative. So who is there to speak for the majority of veterans, again, consistently for several years now, over 65% who say we need to bring our troops home and that we should not be fighting these wars, who represents them? I would say very few people in Congress. And that's why it's important to, you know, self-promotion here, organizations like Bring Our Troops Home, which I work for, led by the great Sergeant Dan McKnight, who served in Afghanistan, a great America First constitutionalist who says, let's bring our troops home and put veterans first, because this is what veterans want, not like the hawks who might have served, who are presented to the American people as, you know, these experts on it, when in fact, none of the people they served with actually agree with them on these issues. You know, I, I'm sorry I kept you over time, but I, it just popped in my head, too. I always get this line uh, from certain people, especially more centrist people that are in favor of the foreign policy blob that will say, oh, all these anti-war people you like or talk to, uh, it's it's all demagoguery. It's all demagoguery. And yet these people would also say uh, Crenshaw and Cotton, who are very hawkish, are demagogues. So how do you respond to people that just want to write off anti-war or pro-peace sentiments as being, uh, you know, just demagogues? I think they are people who have not 
looked at American foreign policy in depth. They have not looked at what our politicians said and did in the lead up to these wars, like the invasion of Iraq. And they have not studied American history to look at the actions of the CIA and the actions of the U.S. government, even going back to the 19th century, when the fact is the state, not just the American government, but the state in general, manipulates people into war with the help of the media, with the help of an academic class of court historians, and that it's our job to make people aware of that history and aware of what's happening right now. And is it demagogic to call these private companies who these weapons contractors merchants of death? I don't think so, because I think it's calling them for what they are. And if that means using tough language or language that might offend some people's sensibilities, then I think they should even be I think they should be even more offended by the death and destruction that is waged by our wars that are unnecessary wars of choice, and that they should really feel outraged about the men and women who serve this country who are going over to die, often for a lie, instead of having a problem with some of the language we use to describe the people who are profiting off of that death and those lies. I think that's a great note to end on. I want to thank you again, Hunter Dorensis for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Uh, I would encourage people to follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's just my name, at Hunter Dorensis, H-U-N-T-E-R-D-E-R-E-N-S-I-S. I think I got a pretty good Twitter feed. They can be the judge of that. Uh, I keep a list of my articles and media appearances at my website, hunterdorensis.com. I'll, you know, it's not a very good website. It's just a list of links, but it's there. And I would encourage people to follow uh, my employer, Libertarian Institute, and uh, bring our troops home, especially that's uh, at Troops Home US on Twitter. Uh, we do great things. We're involved with the Defend the Guard movement. That's our project. And uh, yeah, if they, they want to keep up with me, you know, just keep an eye out for other articles at the American Conservative or Libertarian Institute elsewhere. And yeah, that's, that's about it. And I want to really recommend that readers uh, or listeners, I want to recommend that my listeners uh, check out your article in the American Conservative, uh, Merchants of Death. Uh, it's a good antidote to uh, crap we see spewed all the time from these figures like Robert Kagan. And on that note, I'll just say to hell with Robert Kagan. Thank you very oh, yeah. much, Hunter Dorensis. Thank you so much, JG. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Hunter Dorensis on his article, Merchants of Death, very much worth a read at The American Conservative. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. There's a $1, $5, $10, $15, and even $100 tier. And of course, at the $10 tier and above, you get a producer's credit shoutout. So, producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, and Jeffrey. If you'd like your very own producer's credit, on each and every edition of Parallax Views, then please consider joining those listeners in supporting me at, again, 
patreon.com slash parallaxviews. That's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And of course, at the $5 tier and above, you'll be getting bonus content. Have another edition of our series on the covert history of George H.W. Bush coming up very soon. And also, I've posted a few video interviews from previous editions of Parallax Views. So again, please support me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.